Welcome to episode 187 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, another Understanding Eyepieces episode. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. So we've had some few, uh, we've had some eyepiece questions, a few emails on eyepieces, and some observing reports with new eyepieces. Shane, some pretty interesting stuff coming in on eyepieces these days. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. I like the questions. Um, you know, I, one, one thing that stands out for me from earlier on, uh, in my involvement in the hobby is, um, uh, my, my original approach was to pretty much take all of my savings that I had for astronomy and, and buy a telescope. And then, you know, I, I the telescope that I bought, it came with a couple of plossels and a, a Barlow and a moon filter. Uh, it was my eight inch sky watcher, uh, the, the Dobsonian, and I thought I was set. And mm-hmm. for the most part I was, but, um, I began reading and, and people talked about the whole light path and, and, you know, the telescope is one big part of that light path. But, um, if you have a diagonal or if you have an eyepiece in that, in that light path, um, any one of those points can become a bottleneck or not necessarily a bottleneck, but like, uh, maybe a degradation in performance. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that, you know, you're, you're sort of, you know, going for quality throughout that whole, uh, uh light path. So, uh, I like the questions on eyepieces because, um, they really can change the experience, you know, depending what kind of eyepiece you're using and, and the various characteristics that come along with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I agree. Um, so what I what I did is I is I put some definitions uh, sort of at, at the top of our of our notes, and uh, so I guess maybe just sort of stepping back a little bit, um, we've had a lot of questions and show ideas from listeners, and uh, we we love those because it really helps to guide us. That you know we're happy to come on and talk about anything that you know is at the top of our minds, but you know when when listeners say, hey, look, this is I really want to know a little bit more about this, or maybe you guys already talked about this before, but would you mind doing another episode? Well, we do two a week and it's, I, I just love it when we get um, like tons of sort of uh, questions from, from the listeners, and then we can sort of bring them together into a bunch of different, different episodes. I, I think, you know, it's, that's in a way kind of what I feel this is about what we're doing here. So I'm pretty excited for this. Yeah. Yeah. I echo those comments. It, it, it's super awesome to get that feedback and then just turn that feedback into an episode. Um, you know, I, I think that we, <clears throat> I think we hit the, uh, uh, I don't know, kind of the interest points a little bit better that way. And yeah. And then we don't have to spend so much time texting back and forth saying, Hey, what do you want to talk about this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's true. And I mean, we can always think of stuff. There's always stuff that yeah. I mean, we're, you and I are, I mean, we're really into this. We're always doing something with astronomy. I was telling you about, you know, I didn't get it, get too far down it, but uh, doing some stuff on asterisms and, and uh, some, something completely different that, uh, that we're not really doing on the podcast right now. But, you know, I'm always working on stuff. We're always doing different things. You're always looking at, you know, some crazy, you know, rusty piece of gear from Japan. I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, there's always stuff going on that we can kind of talk about or make an episode out of our own personal interests or, or whatever it is we're working on. But, uh, but it is cool. It kind of makes, it kind of makes it feel more like, um, a bunch of, a bunch of people just sort of sitting around that circle on, on the night we went observing and it ended up being cloudy or misty or whatever. And then we just had a bit of a conversation, right. That, and that's kind of what this is. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. Let's, uh, 
let's just sort of break this down. So what, what is, what is an IP Shane? What, what does it look like? And what's the purpose of an IP? So I have, I have some notes here, but I think maybe like, we'll just give it the straight goods. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the eyepiece is, you know, I guess, I, I guess I'll start at the basics. Uh, you know, it's just a cylinder with some glass in it, right? It's, there you go. It's uh, usually metallic uh, with some glass in there. And um, uh, it, you know, it focuses the, the light that your telescope gathers and presents an image to you uh, or to your eyeball. And uh, uh, there's a lot of characteristics that we're going to talk about. Eye relief, yep. uh, fields of view, uh, different sizes of eyepieces, field stops, and probably a few other things. Yeah, sounds good. So so one of the first numbers that, that I put down this in no particular order is the focal length of the eyepiece. We see that written on the side of the eyepiece in mm or millimeters. So what, what is the focal length of the eyepiece and what, is, what does it matter for the, uh, the telescope user? Well, it, it matters because that calculates your power. Um, so what you would do is you take the focal length of the telescope. So if I use my Skywatcher 120 ED, um, it's 120 millimeter uh, aperture but the focal length is 900 uh, millimeters. So if I wanted to figure out my magnification, I would take 900 and I would divide that by the eyepiece focal length that I'm using. So like a common eyepiece focal length, um, especially say for uh, like a, a low power, wider field of view, you, you might be using like a 32 millimeter plossel. Mm. So 900 divided by 32 gives me 28.1 times magnification. Look at so, you with the math right off the top. Well, I have a calculator here. So um, <laughs> I, I had the numbers inputted. I was ready. <laughs> it's like observing with rain, man. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So yeah, that that's a really good way to, to explain it. Um, you know, and then we have some other sizes. There's, there's really about four different sizes that, that you can, I think you even have like other ones, but We've got, uh, what do we got? 0.96, one and a quarter, two inch, and then the, the very rare three inch eyepieces, eh? Yeah. Yeah. You, you could almost probably take three inch off the list. Cause I, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of people that use three inch eyepieces because then, you know, the focuser and everything else with your telescope has to accommodate that. So yeah, like you said, it's, that's quite rare. Uh, probably the most common for, for people listening would be an inch and a quarter and yep. two inch. Um, for some folks that are into the older telescopes, uh, then they know about the 0.965, uh, inch eyepieces as, yeah. as those were much more common in, uh, in yesteryear. And so basically these sizes are just the barrel diameter and, uh, you know, this determines, uh, you know, how you'll attach that particular eyepiece to the telescope. So if you're, if you got a really old telescope and just takes 0.96, well, that's the opening size. So it's going to be pretty tough to put a larger eyepiece on unless you buy a, an adapter and modify it in, in some way. And then, you know, when, when I was first getting into astronomy, Shane, it, you know, it was more rare to see a two inch focuser on a telescope, though there was some mm -hmm. two inch eyepieces. That was something that you had to um, you know, uh, at least when you bought a Dobsonian, you had to do a manual upgrade and drill a new hole in your telescope and all that kind of stuff in order to fit that uh, two-inch focuser that, that you had to go and buy. And, 
and in order to be able to use two inch eyepieces. But now pretty, pretty much the standard is two inch. And then that enables you to use both two inch large eyepieces and then use your one and a quarters with uh, just a little adapter on there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and maybe one other point about the uh, diameter of eyepieces. Um, as you go up in diameter, you also increase the field of view potential for that eyepiece. Yeah. 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 That's a good way to put it. And still, even today, you know, the bulk of our eyepieces are still one and a quarter. And then, Mm -hmm. um, our lower power eyepieces are, are often two inches, at least, at least for us. And then there's kind of like that intermediary zone in the, in the generally around like nine or 12 millimeters to maybe up to 16 millimeters where they might have both barrels. I know my Doctia 12 and a half millimeter is, uh, is both a one and a quarter and a two inch. And what that looks like is you have the two inch barrel and then just extending a little bit inside and below that is, is a one and a quarter inch barrel. So kind of a, a funky hybrid of sorts. Yeah. Teleview has some eyepieces like that. Some of the Naglers uh, were, were dual barrels. And I think some of the ethos are, are dual barrels too. Hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Let's see what's next. Eye relief. What, hmm. what is eye relief? I think, you know, when people are asking us about, about eyepieces or about binoculars or anything, and, and they, they are asking for recommendations the pretty much one of the first things to go to is the eye relief, because my opinion this, maybe this is my sole opinion here, but my opinion is that eye relief is almost the most important thing to look at, even apart from the brand or how much someone's going to spend on an eyepiece. I, you know, I always think it needs to be a comfortable eyepiece that that person is going to be able to use. And there's lots of eyepieces that are like 70 bucks that fall into that category. Um, and so I focus on eye relief. So what is eye relief, Shane, and why, why is it so important? Yeah. So, so eye relief ratings would be on eyepieces. They're on binoculars, pretty much any optical thing that you'll put your eye towards to look, to look through will have an eye relief rating. And essentially what that tells you is how far away your eyeball can be from the glass and still uh, view the entire field of view is how I usually think of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, it's basically like where the image comes into focus. So in, in eyepiece will have a, a static eye relief, um, uh, measurement to it. Um, and then some eyepieces like, uh, like your Pentex, uh, XWs, uh, will have, a, an eye cup ad- adjustment that, you know, if it's all the way down, then you're getting kind of maximum eye relief. And that's designed for people that wear glasses because our yeah. eyes just can't get close enough to the actual lens of the eyepiece because our glasses get in the way. Yep. Now, if you're not wearing glasses, you would probably adjust that eye cup upwards so that you don't go too like you don't go closer than where that eye relief is. Um, probably that's probably hard to follow. Um, but uh, if you're too close to the eyepiece and it's got long or too close to the lens and it has long eye relief, uh, you may get like kind of blackout effects or sort of yeah. kidney beaming that, you know, is very annoying. And, and, um, really what I think eye relief equates to is just comfort, like your comfort while viewing. Um, and everybody's different. Like you and I both wear glasses and I think you need pretty close to 20 millimeters. Am I right on that, Chris? Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's about right. Yeah. I wear glasses, but I can sometimes get away with like 16 to 17, depending on the eyepiece. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a funny thing. So 
it, it, it really, it's really hard to give a recommendation there when it comes to eye relief. I think it really, this is one of the most, uh, personal things going because I think each astronomer has to kind of figure out what works for them. Yep. No, that's true. So eye relief, you know, uh, the more eye relief, the easier it's going to be to use that eyepiece, um, with eyeglasses and the shorter, uh, the eye relief means that, uh, you're going to be taking those glasses up. Usually there are specs that are printed on the specification sheet for the individual eyepieces. However, unfortunately, those are usually inaccurate. So the best place to go is um, like the, the eyepiece forum on cloudy nights, cloudynights.com, which is, um, I think our number one website to recommend. It's uh, a forum. It's well uh, moderated and everything is, is in well uh, checked there and, and congenial. And usually there's, and in fact, they have a whole spreadsheet in the eyepiece forum where people have measured this using various optical means uh, to actually give the exact eye uh, relief for, for all the eyepieces um, that are currently available. I think you can just book, find any eyepiece that's currently available and uh, the exact specs, not necessarily what the manufacturer has written on them. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is. There's a spreadsheet there. Um, one thing too about eye relief that can be a bit of a uh, I guess maybe a confusing aspect is, is, is the, again, it's measured from the glass, you know, all the way up. And sometimes the glass is deeply set into like mm-hmm. the eyepiece housing. So it may advertise something like 15 or 20 millimeters of eye relief, but sometimes that lens is buried so deep that, you know, the eye relief rating is kind of irrelevant in a way, and, uh, it can make things a little challenging. Okay. Another number that we have in the eyepiece is the uh, field of view, or in the case of the eyepiece itself, the apparent field of view. Mm-hmm. And then we have the real field of view on the night sky. So the uh, true field of view. So um, I was trying to think of, a, of an easy way to explain these, but maybe uh, maybe I'll just see if you have an easy way to explain sort of apparent field of view versus true field of view. Well, maybe I think it's easier to start with true field of view. Um, when you're, when you're looking at your planetarium software and you're measuring like in, in sky safari, you can measure like the distance from one star to another star. They have a tool in there and it'll tell you how many degrees or arc seconds or arc minutes or whatever, uh, these objects are apart. Uh, when, when you and I talk about objects in the sky, we often talk about, you know, how a fist is 10 degrees, um, and, and the distance between things that is all true field of view. And when, when you're, um, when you're calculating, you know, the true field of view with an eyepiece, that is what it is showing you in the sky. So I think that that kind of applies nicely to what you see in your planetarium software. Um, whereas the apparent field of view, ah, oh, I can't remember this one now. I should have, uh, I should have looked this up and, and, and brushed up on my definitions, but, um, essentially what, what, what happens is eyepieces are advertised with the apparent field of view. Like the, uh, the entire, uh, panoptic line is 68 degrees. Well, it's not showing you 68 degrees in the sky. Um, so you have to use like a field of view calculator or, or know the formula to extrapolate what the true field of view is, uh, from that eyepiece. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a pretty good pretty good way to do it. Um, the best way to get one's head around like the field of view and how much the eyepiece can take in is in my opinion, this is the way that I do it. I, I don't like any of those field of view calculators. And, uh, I do like the, um, 
the field of view generator that you can put into your own astronomy software. Because I have tons of different optical instruments and eyepieces and all that kind of stuff. And I like to be able to put the individual instruments in with the various eyepieces that I use. And just kind of through my experience over many years of doing this, I kind of know what the right instrument to apply to the right object is. And, it, and it's kind of a funny thing, actually. Um, but if you really want to figure out your true field, and I think that's the best way to, to look at it is what is your true field, regardless of, of what it says in the eyepiece, is again, to look up those specifications on something like Cloudy Nights, where you can find the field stop. And the field stop is in the bottom of the eyepiece. And it's the narrowest aperture that the light passes through before it enters the, uh, the sort of that light cone inside the eyepiece. Usually it's the bottom element, but I think it can be even up to the third element up inside. But anyway, what you do is you find out what that narrowest, narrowest aperture is. It's called the field stop. You can take that field stop. You can divide that by the focal length of the telescope and then multiply it by 57.3, which I think is like radian or something like that. And then that actually gives it to you in, uh, I think it's arc minutes. Um, so that will actually give you the size of the actual field of the eyepiece. So I know we get a lot of people that write in and they, they will send in uh, screenshots, or I see these a lot online, people that are doing screenshots based on uh, yeah, putting it in like the field of view calculator. But one of the things to keep in mind is the framing of the object. So you have to make sure that um, you understand like how that eyepiece works with your instrument and how to frame it. And I want to give a real real world example of this. Um, I was having um, a conversation with Phil. I'm not, he sent some voicemails, Shane, and I'm not sure I was having some private conversations with Phil about eyepieces. And I think he did send some of the stuff into uh, into the general hopper. But uh, uh, anyway, do you mind if I just kind of sort of lay out what he was doing? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, okay. So Phil um, was trying to observe the Rosette Nebula. And the Rosette Nebula, I'm not going to get into all the NGC numbers and that sort of thing, but it's a great big nebula that's in Monoceros. And this is just uh, to the southeast of Betelgeuse. So, uh, and that's in Orion. So we have uh, the winter sky nice and high right now. So we have Orion uh, rising in the evening sky and just following Orion and the bright red star Betelgeuse, which is on Orion's right shoulder, sort of when we look at it top left. Um and that's on, on the eastern side. We, we have following that star, the constellation of Monoceros, which is, I think, a unicorn or something like that. Anyway, and this big bright nebula is called the Rosette. And inside the Rosette, there's also a cluster. And surrounding that cluster is this wreath of nebulosity. So have you ever seen the Rosette Nebula, Shane? Have you, you've, you've observed this, I think. Yeah, yeah, I have. Yep. So it's a pretty popular object to take a look. And our friend Phil... Phil from the UK was trying to observe it with his eight inch F6 Dobsonian, which is, a, that's a great instrument. This is, we, we think that one of the top instruments for people to use when they get started. Um, however, he has a variety of smaller instruments too. So anyway, he was out and he was um, trying to observe the rosette. And one of the reasons why he was is actually like a classic reason. I really like the way he phrased this was that um, he was uh, picking a large object, a seemingly bright large object, um, but then getting frustrated. I, I, I won't even say frustrated. Phil didn't really get that frustrated. Um, he, uh, he was just like struggling to see it a little bit, sort of enjoying the process though. And that's what I like to do too. You know, I go out and a lot of the time I don't see what I went after and, uh, and, and 
that's okay because when I do eventually see something, it's sort of worth worth the journey. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Shane, but that's sort of my philosophy. Yeah, totally. Like I, I always. Uh, what's like traveling, you know, the, the destination is important and that's why you travel, but sometimes getting there is, is, you know, a big part of the journey and a lot of the fun. And, um, when I'm, when I'm star hopping or trying to find an object, I, I just enjoy that too. I enjoy the challenge and I enjoy the sky that I see along the way. And there's been more, more times than I can count where, as I'm trying to get to a certain object that I want to see, I get diverted by something else. You know, you're kind of, you're sweeping the sky and you come across an open cluster and it's like, what, what am I looking at here? Yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, you're, you go to the star charts and try to identify, you know, what you came across and, and yeah, it's a lot of fun. I like it. And then there's, there's some people and I'm not poking fun at anybody in particular, but I will, I will sort of make fun of a, a, of a person that, that, you know, I've observed with, um, you know, in a previous location that I'm good friends with, um, but I, the guy often reminds me of, um, sort of the friend of my dad, my, my dad would work, you know, like a very busy person all week, like many people do. And on the weekend, he'd look forward to going play, play a game of golf. And I remember there was somebody that would go out and, and he's just like, you know, it doesn't matter what he's shooting. Like he probably is not even keeping score in my dad. And then, you know, he's just there to relax this is years ago. And then like the other person he's golfing with is like swearing every time he he hits the ball, right? <laughs> because, you know, he's getting frustrated at his game. And, and, you know, my dad was like, you know, come on, like you were out here, it's a beautiful day. And you're like, you know, come on, like, you know, work week is always a bit of a rough ride, but this, this is what, this is what you live for. Right. And I always think about that. I had a friend uh, that I used to observe with quite a bit somewhere else and, and we'd be observing and I could hear him like grumbling over there. I'm like, what are you grumbling about? It'd be like this beautiful night. I remember one night we had all these, these fireflies around us. And it was just like, it was something out of uh, almost out of like a, like a, like some sort of computer generated beautiful scene with dark skies and stars and fireflies. And he's like, they're cursing under his breath. And I'm like, you, you have to stop doing that now. Like, <laughs> like the gods are going to hear you. Right. <laughs> but anyway, so, so Phil was trying to calculate um, the field of view using some of these new, uh, he's got some really great inexpensive wide field eyepieces. I think they're just wonderful. You know, there's a lot of really great inexpensive wide field eyepieces. I have some, I recommend. Um, and he's using the, the field of view calculator, but he's, he's looking at the field of view calculator in relation to his telescope, in relation to like an image or, or a chart of this object. Uh, and he, he was using his eight inch telescope and he was using a bunch of filters, a really good wide field eyepieces. And, uh, and, and yeah, it was, it was a struggle to see it. So, uh, so he, he wrote me or, or had left a voicemail saying, yeah, you know, I was out and, you know, and like, he's enjoying the night. He's not mumbling under his breath, I hope. Um, but, uh, but he was saying, you know, I'm just not, I kind of think I saw part of it, but it's not, you know, it was because his telescope is large enough with a long enough focal length that even with a really low power eyepiece, he's not able to frame the object. And so he's got a really, a really good little 60 millimeter that he's been sending us notes on. And so I actually wrote him back. I said, Hey, look, take that 60 out and try to use it. I said, you don't even need a filter to see the rosette. And I said, uh, and I may have even sent him a, a sketch of this. I was sketching the rosette back in, at the end of summer, early fall in the morning. And I was observing it with my 50 millimeter F5 um, and two inch eyepieces. 
And, uh, and I was able to view the rosette very easily. I was able to observe Barnard's Loop. I was able to observe the rosette, the California, North American Pelican Nebulas, IC1396, all kinds of these great objects. So I said, you know, it's, it's about putting the right tool to the right object. You know, sometimes, um, you know, and I know I did this quite a bit too when I bought my first eight inch telescope and I was looking at the charts and I saw these really big and seemingly bright objects. But sort of strangely enough, you know, that the telescope is spreading the light out too much. The field of view is too small to frame them. And then uh, it, it makes them a challenge even just to see a part of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's it's that balance or, or that blend of equipment to, you know, or to use the right tool for whatever you're trying to look at. Yeah. And then sort of strangely enough, <laughs> I think I I think I ended I think I ended my uh my, my email to him saying that, uh, oh, you need a smaller telescope to see an object that faint, <laughs> which I think is my new motto. <laughs> oh, well, your telescope's too big to see such a faint object. <laughs> that, that kind of falls in line with our love of small telescopes. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I, like I did all these sketches of these, you know, these, uh, these really faint nebulae. And at, like I said, at the end of summer, the beginning of fall, and, you know, it's, you know, the, the idea that I'm out with a 50 millimeter telescope looking at all this stuff, <laughs> like, I know it probably seems asinine to people. Like I'm getting up and in the middle of the night and going out and doing all this astronomy and I'm doing it with the telescope that I carry up the hill in my pocket. Um, I, I think that there is, there is something to be said for that. You know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty neat to be able to do it. All right. going to move on here. We had uh, quite a few questions from uh, Chef Ozzy, who's on, who's on the Eastern seaboard, I think. Uh, anyways, on the uh, sort of the eastern side of, of the state somewhere. And uh, he, he put this out. I thought this was a really good question because we might have sort of touched on some of this before. And he says, I was wondering if you guys could do an in-depth episode about the varying subtleties of the views you can see through, uh, through say, say, for example, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of generalize this a bit. Uh, for example, like a plossal or maybe insert like any type of eyepiece, maybe like a 70 degree or an 82 degree or whatever. But we know that all these different companies typically put out similar lines, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's a plossal or like an 82 or 70 degree or whatever, 60 something. Um, but what's the difference between the views from the different manufacturers? And he lists like, uh, I think SB Boney, uh, Teleview, um, you know, and the list goes on and on. Um, so so what, what is the difference in the view between um, eyepiece manufacturers, say from a really inexpensive eyepiece manufacturer to, to maybe a, a very expensive eyepiece manufacturer, even if it's just like, like a basic plossal or just a wide field or, or whatever, Shane, what, what, what do you see as the difference there? Hmm. Yeah. I like the question. Um, so maybe, maybe I'll just start it off by saying on axis. So when I, what I mean by on axis would be, Oh, sorry, if that was too loud. Um, so what I, what, what I mean is, um, basically like in, in the center of the field of view. So right in the middle is kind of the sweet spot. Most eyepieces are probably going to be somewhat indistinguishable. Yep. Um, the quality of, of eyepieces being made now is, is pretty darn good. Yeah. Now with that aside, the differences that you would see between, uh, say a higher end eyepiece and maybe, uh, you know, a lower end in terms of price, 
um, would be some small details and maybe some larger ones as, as well, I suppose. But um, some of it is in the mechanics of the eyepiece, like just uh, like the eyepiece cup uh, and the adjustment for that. Like, does it move up or down? How does it do that? Higher end eyepieces, that's usually better, but that's not always the case. Um, sometimes higher end eyepieces uh, don't do that well either. So, you know, there's, there's a mechanical aspect to it. Um, another thing that I've noticed is the, um, if you just turn your eyepiece upside down, pretty much any eyepiece, the inside of that barrel is going to be blackened and it's, it's to prevent, uh, like stray light from bouncing around in there and reflecting and, and causing all sorts of degraded views. Now, uh, sometimes lower end eyepieces they're they'll all be painted black, but you know, black isn't always the same shade, uh, same reflectivity, all that kind of stuff, as silly as that may sound. Um, some of the black paints that are used, like if you just kind of, you know, hold it up to a light, uh, to try to, uh, you know, get it at an angle, you'll notice that some eyepieces, uh, the black is actually quite shiny and mm -hmm. somewhat reflective. Um, higher end eyepieces usually have a much flatter block so that there's just no, no light that bounces off of that. It's basically eaten up there. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's another aspect, uh, that you may notice. Um, and maybe the last one that I'll speak of, and then I'll turn it over to you, Chris, cause you might have some others, um, will be the, uh, the edge of the field of view. Um, higher end eyepieces are usually better corrected across the entire field of view. Mm -hmm. And this is not like, uh, uh, an absolute, but in most cases it's true. Um, where, so, you know, you, you'll, uh, you'll look to the edge, the eyepiece, let's say you've got a, a higher end one. Let's say you've got a Teleview Nagler or something like that, that costs quite a bit of money. Um, when you look at the edge of the eyepiece, it's almost always well-corrected, no matter what telescope you're using. Um, mm -hmm. whereas, um, a less expensive eyepiece, you may notice, um, you know, towards the edge, it might be like 60% of the way out. It might be 80% of the way out. You may notice that the stars are no longer pinpoints that they have mm -hmm. some aberrations. And, um, that's a little more indicative of, um, of the, the, of cheaper eyepieces. And actually I'm going to chime in with, uh, two more things real quick, Chris, that just, no worries. you go, um, probably the, like, I think probably the two most important aspects for a quality eyepiece is, um, number one is the grind of the glass or the polish of the glass that's in that eyepiece. Um, to you, to our eyes, they all look good. Like you're not going to notice any imperfections. Um, but higher end eyepieces will be polished a lot longer. And that's often what you're paying for is it just, it takes a lot longer to produce them. Um, so the, the better, the polish, the less, uh, scatter there will be, um, and, and often greater contrast. Yeah. Um, the other aspect that higher end eyepieces usually have is just better coatings. Yeah. And that's a real big deal too, to some people. And, and, um, you know, coatings do make a difference. Um, again, higher end eyepieces will have better ones. And then that usually, um, allows for more light throughput, uh, again, sometimes better contrast. Sometimes though, the coatings also can add a color to the eyepiece. Mm -hmm. Um, again, you know, I'm not picking on Teleview. This is just, if you read in cloudy nights, you're going to read this. 
Yeah, um, that, and we've so, owned so, we, we've owned Teleview eyepieces. So uh, yeah, I own two of them. We're, and I we're not them. like yeah. shooting from the hip here or anything. No, no, no. I I think they make great stuff. Um, but but there is um. Uh, like I think they're plossels in particular, and maybe some of the panoptics. I'm not sure if it applies to all Teleview eyepieces, but um, some of them have what people refer to as a coffee tone to them, or or a warmer view, um, which some people actually want that and, and yep. think that it enhances the views of Jupiter or brings. Yeah, out so, yeah I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. coffee tone can really bring in some subtle Jupiter features. Yeah, I use yeah. some Teleview plossels for for a, for a long time observing Jupiter. Yeah. Yeah. But, but some people don't like that. You know, some people just want like as neutral a view as possible. Um, and then they'll gravitate towards like the, uh, the Pentax XWs. In fact, I think just about all of the Pentax eyepieces are sort of renowned for a more neutral view, not really imparting uh, any color. So, so I'm going to shut up now. I've talked a lot about the differences (laughs) high end and low end. So I'll turn it back to you. See if you've got anything else to add. Yeah. So, so the first thing I'm going to say is it, it, it's not necessarily about how much money you spend. So um, one of the eyepieces that I've been using a lot this year, I, I wanted to say it was 50, but then now I think, and I think it was only 32 or $35 American. And it's uh, it's just a, an in-house 32 millimeter plossel from um, a Gina Astro. And, and what makes that eyepiece so awesome, it really is awesome. Um, like as far as owning um, a good 32 millimeter, millimeter plus, which I think is, is a good eyepiece for, for everybody, mm-hmm. um, to have, like, I think it's just a good eyepiece to have in the case. Um, I think like that one is right up there with ones that cost say five or eight times as much. And, and what makes it so good is, um, they've just paid a little bit of extra attention to the quality control. I think probably the cheapest, 32 millimeter plus you can get is probably around 20 or 25 bucks. So there's really isn't that much more, but what they did is they just kind of optimized um, what is a very common and easily designed eyepiece and, uh, and they hit it out of the park. I think it's really good. And so um, I just kind of want to, want to put that out there. This, this isn't all about, um, you know, just shelling out all the, all the money that, that you can afford or maybe not afford and buying some real, real expensive eyepieces. And so what do they do? Well, um, they, they just gave it, I think like another coating, I think it's fully multi-coated and they blacken the edges of the lenses. And that's really important for, um, really good contrast in an eyepiece. And like Shane was saying, they just use like a slightly, maybe like a slightly better, um, blackening on the inside of the eyepiece. And there you go, you know, just some really simple stuff that costs, you know, uh, to, to the end user, maybe five bucks or so, um, turned turn it from being maybe what would have not been a great eyepiece to, to being just, just really, a, a, an awesome eyepiece, just great to use. Um, and let's see, uh, for, for, you know, more expensive eyepieces, maybe that, that you're paying for, well, like Shane was saying, you're going to be paying for those more expensive premium coatings. And, uh, what, what do they look like? Well, sort of funny enough, Shane, really good coatings don't look like anything at all. Do they? <laughs> Usually not. Like sometimes if you just catch the right angle, you'll notice like some eyepieces may sort of look purplish or greenish. Yeah. And if you see that color in the glass, you're, you're seeing the coatings. Yeah. So oftentimes like, um, you know, you'll, you'll see this eyepiece and you hold it to, to the light a certain way and have this big green cast to it or purple cast or whatever. Um, but I, I find like with some of these higher end ones, like the Pentax coatings in particular, they almost don't even look like anything like on my five inch refractor. Um, it's not an eyepiece, but talking coatings here. 
um, it just sort of has almost like a, like a blue watery ocean cast to it. It's, mm-hmm. it's quite remarkable. And uh, yeah, it doesn't really look like it has much in the way of coatings on it, but they are, they're uh, an AR coating, I think is what, what they are exactly. Um, as well, you know, as you, as you do uh, spend a little bit more money, um, one of the big things that you're getting like in Teleview, Pentax, Vixen, uh, and the list goes on and on is you're actually getting lanthanum glass. And I think I'm saying that right. Lanthanum is a rare earth um, mineral or element or something like that. You can look it up if you want. I'm not a geologist here. We're looking at the sky, not the ground. Um, but but that's what you're actually buying. And that material um, you know, in optical form is really giving you um, some of the best views in the night sky. And unfortunately, it's just really expensive. So that's actually what you're paying for. Um, and it's a pretty sophisticated glass once they get it set up in there. And then the other thing is, is that you're paying for computer generated um, sophisticated glass in combination with plastic lens elements, uh, field flatteners and barlows. So sometimes in a really complex design at the bottom, you might have a field flattener with a barlow sitting above it, sitting above that, you might have a spherical ball of plastic and sitting above that, you might have a rare earth element. Um, and, and just even just describing it, you can tell that, you know, this is an eyepiece that's going to cost into the hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And if executed well, it's going to give you this um, superb view of the nighttime sky. I have to say, though, Shane, um, this stuff is all pretty subtle, you know, and getting back to uh, Chef's original uh, point is is like how how subtle is this? Well, in my experience, I, I went out with a person who uh, who decided to get into astronomy um, in retirement. And so this is what they were going to put their money into. And they had hardly ever done much in the way of astronomy anymore. And they went and bought the absolute best, most expensive eyepieces that they could get. um, And were incredibly disappointed, unfortunately, because I think just not having the the comparison and sort of working their way up and and learning the night sky and enjoying the night sky and sort of seeing it for what it is. um, I think, I think they were sort of uh, underwowed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I value trying different eyepieces, and I've tried quite a few in my lifetime. Um, and and you know, you you come or you learn a little bit more about what you prefer that way, and and I think it does help you appreciate some of the subtle differences. And and even with that, I think some of those subtle differences really just come with time at the eyepiece. Like the more experience you gain as an astronomer. Uh, the more likely you are to start to notice more and more detail every time you observe, like there's still times when I look at Jupiter and Mars and and those planets and, you know, certainly the seeing plays a big part, but I think just, you know, as you accumulate years and and more photons, you just, again, you kind of learn to see more and more. Yeah. And, and there are some differences and some of the stuff, although there might be a price difference, um, and I'm going to sort of draw this out. I know, I know you haven't looked through my Massiema 32, or if you have, it's only been once. Um, but my 32 Massiema costs about half or maybe a third of like your Nagler 30, 31 millimeter. Um, and there's differences, pluses and minuses from both of those eyepieces that make them both in a way comparable because they're both roughly around 30 to 32 millimeters. You know, they're both in that same bracket. They both have just over an 80 degree field of view. Um, so you think these eyepieces, well, it's going to be, you know, comparing apples and apples, but in many ways it's not. So like Shane's 31 Nagler is huge. It's very heavy. And the Massiema is really light and, and almost svelte and delicate in comparison. So 
Um, what do you get with that added weight? Well, like you get more of those rare earth um, elements that are contained in there and they're, they're heavy and they require larger housing and more of them. Um, and what that does though, is it gives you this beautifully corrected field of view right from the center to the edge. So it's a, it's a flat field eyepiece that transmits lots of light. It's very sharp. It's a very beautiful eyepiece. On the Masayama, the edge is, is not as pretty. It's, it's going to be soft and it, uh, it has some other optical aberrations. So why would I go with the Masayama? Well, it's, it's cheaper. I, I just got admit I didn't want to spend the money. It's lighter. I didn't want to carry something else that's heavy. But then in, in use and practice, um, just because it, it has fewer elements, um, and they've used really good modern coatings. It's not an inexpensive eyepiece by any, any stretch, um, but what they've put in for coatings and what they've put in for the elements are really good. So it passes um, a tremendous amount of light inside the interior of the field. Um, you know, so, so you get this, this huge benefit of, of more light coming through. But you know, sort of given the ideal situation, you want both of those eyepieces. So in a, in a way, one of the things we try to do is not double up on things too much. It, it would have been easy to find another used 31 millimeter Nagler to stick in my case. But then when we're out observing, it's nice to have this eyepiece and it's really great. Um, you know, and I always look forward to, to look, looking through the 31 millimeter Nagler. So that, that kind of loops back to something Mike was saying recently about, you know, <laughs> you know having good friends to observe with you know, and, and making sure that you don't buy all the same gear because then you get that nice variety in, in the equipment that's in the field. And it, and it really is impossible to kind of go out and, and own everything that you, that you might want. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Shane, but it's for my two oh, bits. No, no. Um, the, the comment that you made about um, like the number of glass elements um, in, in the Masuyama is lesser, therefore more light comes through. Um, that's kind of a applicable as well to, um, really all eyepieces and like the, the planetary folks mm -hmm. often talk about simple glass and that's why they like orthoscopics or plossels, uh, because there's very few elements, um, in there. Like, I think your Masuyama has five elements. Yeah. Whereas like the, uh, like an orthoscopic or, um, the super monos that I have, uh, have like three elements. And the other aspect to that too, is the air to glass surfaces, because mm -hmm. that's where some of the light loss occurs. And, um, like the super monos that I have, while there's three elements, uh, all three are fused together. So then there's only two actual surfaces like air to glass surfaces. Whereas if they were all separated, you would have six air to glass surfaces and more light loss. So there's yeah. a lot of, uh, kind of nuances like that, that if you really get going down the rabbit hole of high contrast and maximum light throughput, um, you'll, you'll start to run into those conversations. Yeah. I'm just going to build on that a bit. And, and, you know, one of the eyepieces that I have for, for planets is the uh, Pentax 5.1, XO, which is, which is no longer made, although they made a ton of them, you can find them used. Um, and you know, it's, it, it, I think, I think I could swallow it. It's that small. It's a very small eyepiece and, uh, you know, it, but it gives these beautiful planetary, um, views. It's, it's only got, again, like Shane was saying, four or five elements, beautiful coatings, um, extremely well designed. It's not wide field and has no eye relief. Um, so it has some detractions, has some benefits, and, and, you know, you can really see that difference, um, you know, when you've done lots of observing, especially if you're going back and forth between eyepieces. So I actually own the 5XW now, and, and, but I still own the, 
the little uh, 5.1 uh, XO. Um, you know, and, and what you get with these sort of eyepieces, whether it's one of those or like a Nikon Nav, like when I stole your Nikon Nav last year for an extended period, I think I borrowed it for like three months or something. But, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time observing Jupiter with that Nikon NAV 5mm. And uh, one of the things I really liked about that eyepiece is you could put Jupiter just outside the field, watch it come right into the field. And it had no distortion, at least for me. It was just beautiful. It was sharp right to the edge. And so, you know, when you're not using a guided telescope, like at the time I, I wasn't using a guided telescope, I was just using my Aldaz mount. I could just sort of put Jupiter outside of the field and watch it come in or, or put it just outside. And then um, I was observing a lot with my wife last year, or I guess even the year before now is what I'm thinking about. And, and she could watch it come into the field. And then as it was getting towards the other side, let me know. And I would sort of readjust things. So you, you do kind of get that. Whereas with um, maybe, but not necessarily, but maybe a lesser, uh, you know, a less expensive eyepiece may not be as sharp on that edge. So that as, as Jupiter or whatever it is you're looking at um, gets to the edge of the field of view, it's, it's maybe going to get softer, require a refocus or something like that. It's not that big a deal, but um, you know, these are the differences. We were asked what the differences are. So we're pointing them out and uh, you know, I, I enjoy looking at um, less expensive eyepieces and trying to uh, pair them up for people that maybe are just getting into astronomy and, and giving people some recommendations. And I've even, even bought eyepieces for, um, for relatives and that that are looking to get into astronomy, just, just to try things out and, and see what you can get these days. It's pretty amazing what you can get. You can get really decent long eye relief eyepieces that are reasonably wide field of view. Um, it's, it's a great age we live in for astronomy anyway. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of great options out there and you certainly do not need to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on eyepieces to really enjoy your telescope. Um, you know, the, the more expensive eyepieces do provide some benefits, but you know, if you were to take a, a you know, I don't even know what the Nagler 31 millimeter is. It's one of the more expensive eyepieces out there, or let's just say take an ethos, which would probably be around a thousand dollars Canadian or pretty close well, to it. Um, if you take that and compare it to, I don't know, uh, a run of the mill Plossel, uh, let's, let's even call it a Teleview Plossel. So let's, you know, you're spending maybe a hundred or $150 on it. Yeah. Um, I will guarantee you that the view through the ethos is not 10 times better. Um, it's just, no. it'll be different, you know, and, and some people prefer that view and some people actually don't like the wide fields that the ethos provide or, or any of the hundred degrees. Um, some people just don't care for them, but, um, you know, I, I, I guess the message I'm trying to say is just don't get hung up on, you know, the need for some of these high end eyepieces. Cause you're, the, the, the jump in performance doesn't equate the jump in price. That's right. I mean, this stuff is, is expensive. You know, um, I, I buy a new eyepiece. I say I buy one new eyepiece every year, whether I need one or not. Um, you know, and, and so that, that's why it took me 20 years to accumulate all the Pentax XWs, but it's fine. You know, it was, it was a great journey. Um, and I'm sure I'll still buy a new eyepiece every other year or so, but, um, you know, like you were saying, Shane, you know, you, you can't get hung up on, on getting into your head that you're going to even buy certain eyepieces because like, I remember when the Teleview ethos were coming out and everybody was so amped on those. And I remember it was, uh, uh, oh, it was somebody from Clyde and Nights. And anyway, um, he since passed away, but, um, he, he brought up a, a Teleview refractor, actually, um, one of the ones like yours, one of the hundred millimeters and, and he had the 13 ethos. 
And I was so excited. I wait this little line and, and I went over and I looked through it and it was great when I had my glasses off, I couldn't, things weren't well focused. I have a lot of astigmatism, put my glasses on. I can only see 70 degrees of the field. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, well, this is sort of what I had almost like based my next astronomy purchases around is that I was going to save up all this money and maybe buy this eyepiece. And then they were going to be releasing them every two or three years, which is kind of like the cadence of, of my purchases. And uh, I got to admit, I do love it when, when I go and look through somebody's telescope and I whip my glasses off and, and I take a look up those hundred degree uh, fields. But for me, I'm wasting my money to, mm-hmm. to spend it on hundred degree fields um, for the most part, because uh, I have to take my glasses off and I'm, I'm getting uh, a lot of my, my optical imperfections in my eyes suddenly being thrust upon this really expensive and beautiful uh, piece of glass. So that, that's why I've gravitated towards getting uh, 70 degree um, fields of view for the most part where I can see the whole field and I can wear my glasses and keep it in sharp focus throughout. So, and it saves me a few dollars too, which I'm always happy about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and I'm glad you mentioned like kind of the, the lifetime of building your eyepiece collection that it didn't happen overnight because, you know, you and I admittedly, we, we have some nice eyepieces, you know, and, and some of them are, uh, you know, not cheap, that's for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think an important point is you and I didn't start there and it did take like, you know, 20 plus years of saving money and making purchases, uh, you know, along the way to, to accumulate this stuff. So, um, you know, one of the things that I did and I, I still do is I put a little bit of money aside every paycheck and it goes away and I forget about it. And it's my fun money for astronomy. (laughs) And at some point it's enough that I can, you know, fund a purchase or, you know, sell something and then, you know, combine all of that money to, to buy my next eyepiece or whatever I, I might be interested in. Um, cause it is a bit of a, a labor of love. It, it takes a while, unless you're, you know, fortunate enough to have a, a, a big bank account, then you can just dive right in and, and buy a lot of this expensive stuff. But, uh, you know, for, I think most of us, it, it just takes a little bit of time to, to accumulate it. Yeah. Even still, it's kind of like, you know, and I know people compare this stuff to wine and I mean, I mean, I, I do enjoy the odd glass, um, but I'm not like a, like a wine connoisseur, but, but I guess from, from that perspective, you know, it's like, it, it takes a while to understand, appreciate wine. I mean, certainly a lot more than I do. Um, but, but it's kind of like, well, you could go out and buy a lot of really expensive wine and just still get drunk every weekend. Right. You know, like you're not really appreciating it. And yeah. it's, it's sort of that, that same type of thing. It, it's gonna, take a while to understand and appreciate the, the eyepieces that work for you and, and that are going to give you the views that you're able to appreciate and the understanding of the night sky uh, isn't just going to come magically because uh, maybe you uh, had a windfall and were able to, you know, drop a thousand dollars in an eyepiece. It, it's still just an eyepiece and it's still uh, your brain that's, that's going to interpret it based on your past experiences. So that's kind of how it works. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Just want to get to uh, chef was asking some questions and he said like he's seeing some something black in the field of view um and i was thinking that's probably either a a floater or kidney beating or something like that so what are what are floater shane and what is what is kidney beating what might cause a, a black area in in the field of view of the eyepiece um so so floaters are just uh like basically bacteria in your eyeball um, it's, it's normal. It's natural. It's not a bad thing. 
but on really bright objects, um, particularly with higher magnifications, you're going to see all these little squiggly, like cellular type things kind of floating by. And that's just in your eyeball. And, and for the most part, you have to live with that. Um, bino viewers can sometimes negate those effects or uh, lower power eyepieces can sometimes help there or just don't look at such uh, bright stuff. Um, so anyway, floaters is one. Uh, kidney beaning. Um, so it's, it's when you kind of move your eye around the eyepiece and all of a sudden, like, um, it, it's almost like somebody took a legitimate kidney bean and put it on the edge of the field of view. Like, a, you'll kind of get yeah. this big blackout that's sort of, you know, almost, you know, uh, kind of banana shaped and it, it moves around as you move your eye around. Um, so that can be a result of, uh, like just an eye relief mismatch. And then, um, sometimes too, like just, again, if you're looking at a bright object, you may, you might just have some dirt on the eyepiece and, uh, or, or some sort of debris that needs to be blown off with a, like an air blower. Um, and some eyepieces, this is, and this is not just exclusive to lower priced eyepieces, uh, very expensive eyepieces sometimes have this issue where, where they come out of the factory and there's dust between the elements or, you know, some sort of debris. And, um, again, if you're looking at a bright object, like a planet, uh, a small speck of whatever can look like a, you know, kind of a big black, you know, object of sorts. Mm -hmm. So maybe the, the last question we'll, we'll deal with here is, uh, is also from Chevy said, since you're, you're going to do a high mag episode, not really high magnification episode, just kind of talking in general, but, but some of the stuff is high magnification stuff. Um, can you do a refresher on star testing? the focusing method for star testing and, and as well, like, like how do you focus, um, you know, uh, w when you're, when you're using high power eyepieces, Shane? Um, yeah, good question. So, uh, you know, the star testing can be a pretty complex subject. Um, there's a book by, is it Sutter or Suter that we yeah. recommend? Yeah. Star testing astronomical telescopes by Suter. Yeah. S-U-I-T-E-R. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best resource for it in my opinion. Um, because there's so many different results you can get from a star test. I, I just don't think we can cover it in the last no. couple of minutes here. Um, but how I like to focus at high powers is, um, well, a couple methods. If the moon is in the sky, because there's so much detail and contrast on the moon, I will try to focus there at high power, um, particularly along the edge, just get that as sharp as I can. And then I'll move it over to Jupiter or whatever else that I want to look at. So that's one method. Um, another method is um, just to get the background stars uh, as pinpoint as possible. Um, and then once you have that, you're, you're going to be about as focused as you possibly can be. Um, however, another thing that I like to do when I'm, you know, typically if you're doing high powered observing, I'm assuming you're doing like lunar or, or planetary observing. And um, a, a method that I like to do quite a bit is rack the focus in and out uh, somewhat repeatedly, um, because doing that stimulates uh, the various sensors in your eye, and it sometimes helps you pick up more detail. Yep, and, and your eye will change like throughout the evening. That the telescope is is expanding and contracting with the temperatures. The the sky is actually shifting a bit. It will cause your telescope to need to be refocused. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that that take place, and like you were saying, Shane. Like I also will focus right through best focus and then back out and then back in again. I'll kind of get the sense where that, that really sharp focus point 
um, or focal point is going to, to lie in that particular evening and then try to hit it. You know, like I find that it's like a point I need to try to hit, like just like throwing a dart at a board. And, you know, if, if I can hit that really sharp um, focus um, and it's, it's a very active action. So I focus through focus and then back out, focus through focus and back out and kind of, you know, kind of like trying to hit that target, you know, I just try to focus in and then stop. And I, I get a sense for whether or not I've hit it. And then uh, I'm constantly, uh, you know, go, going back and, and refocusing through throughout uh, my session. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I do the same thing. Okay. Uh, let's see. I mean, we have a few, few other things in here, but I, I think we're pretty much uh, at yeah. time. Uh, I've got some resources to add. Did, did you have anything else to add before I hop down to the books uh, that, that I recommend anyway? Uh, no, no, go for it. All right. So I've got a list of resources, um, for people that are interested in, uh, eye pieces. These are all books that I have on my shelf. Um, some of these are rather difficult to obtain and are expensive. Some of them are are not so much. Um, so let's see. So uh, a more recent one that I bought that's widely available and I think is excellent is called choosing and using astronomical eye pieces by William Paolini, P-A-O-L-I-N-I, and that's a Springer book. Um, It's really thick. There's lots of good information in there, and I think that's probably what most people are going to be looking for. If you read a lot on eyepieces and eyepiece selection and observing, there there is a book that's referenced quite a bit. It's used, available used, um, reasonably Priced um, Visual Astronomy of the Deep Sky by Roger Clark. Um, it's an older book, so some of the information is a little bit dated. Um, and there's a lot of sort of maths and that sort of thing in there. Um, another book, this book I love. It's out of print already, though. It's hard to believe it hasn't even been in print that long. Maybe they'll reissue it. Um, and it is Telescopes, Eyepieces, and Astrographs. Design, Analysis, and Performance of Modern Astronomical Optics by Gregory Hallock-Smith, Richard Berry, and Roger Siragioli. And um, it is oh, it is like the best book on optics and telescopes and eyepieces. It's, um, it looks a bit academic when you get it, but it's very well written and easy to read. And these people are the masters. And so they really understand the topic and how to convey the information to the the amateur astronomer like me anyway. Um, And so I really recommend that one if you can get your hands on it, but it's not easily available when they come up used. um, Boy, I think I looked once and the price was well into the many hundreds of dollars. And I think my copy cost me $60 when I picked it up or something. So that one's kind of unfortunate. Do you have any, any books or resources that you might uh, recommend Shane? Um, no, just, uh, just cloudy nights is my primary go-to when I want to see what other people think of eyepieces and, um, try to, try to, uh, find reviews where people have actually used other equipment and not just telling you about their experience. Because, um, I, I do find that sometimes the opinions there are based 
are, are based on not a lot of experience, you know, so you do have to take it with a, a little bit of a grain of salt and, and look for people that have like a wide experience. So like Bill Paoloni, you know, who, who wrote, uh, choosing and using astronomical eyepieces is one of those folks that has, uh, you know, extensive experience with different telescopes and eyepieces. So yep. when he talks about, you know, the best six millimeter eyepiece, you know, I, I like to read those ones because, um, uh, he knows what he's talking about and he often applies a very sort of scientific approach to reviewing that stuff too. Yeah, that, that probably is the best one that, that I would recommend these days. He he covers uh, most of the topics I think are important. And then he also talks an awful lot about the eyepieces and his extensive um, and very good experience under the, the night sky and using a variety of instruments from like the common Dobsonian that most people are going to own to high-end refractors to his experience with a lot of other more um, elaborate and sophisticated instruments. But but he's using some pretty um, basic equipment, but then a lot of um, sort of varied and, and interesting eyepieces and, and from the full spectrum of inexpensive good eyepieces to um, very expensive uh, good eyepieces as well. Kind of kind of gives a really nice uh, balanced approach because, you know, no matter what your budget is, there's always an eyepiece out there for everybody. And I also think it's really important to, to think about the fact, Shane, maybe we should close on this, is that, you know, we often only use two or three eyepieces through the course of an evening ourselves. And so that's what we recommend that people try to do is just get a, a really nice core set of a few eyepieces that are going to give them a, a few of those key magnifications, very low power, nice medium range, and a good sort of medium high into high power. That's that's what's going to be the core of your observing, like no matter what you get into in astronomy or anything else, you're really gonna gonna settle down to to a small number of magnifications for the most part on on any given night. Yeah, yeah, for sure with the deep sky stuff. Planetary, I find I I do I you know I do find kind of the maximum threshold that the atmosphere is allowing that night, and then hang out at that focal length. Mm-hmm. Well, anything else to add, Shane? No, that is all. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks everybody for listening. Be sure to subscribe in your podcatching software, and we're always excited to get reviews and to receive emails from you, the listeners on what you'd like to hear us talk about next. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.